This is always the graveyard shift right after lunch, so you do your best to stay awake. I will do my best to keep you awake. Uh, but we've turned now to consider the role that conversion and our doctrine of conversion plays in the life of the church. And in some ways, uh, that's what we've been talking about all morning. But uh, I want to think about it in some more specifics. And uh, with the time that we have allotted to us for this topic, I want to kind of think about this idea from three different angles. First, that the church is the arena in which the reality of our conversion is demonstrated and evaluated. Let me say that again. The church is the arena in which the reality of our conversion is both demonstrated and evaluated. Secondly, our doctrine of conversion will either help form or warp our churches in important ways. So if we get our doctrine of conversion right, it's going to help form some things. But I particularly want to think about ways in which uh, a faulty doctrine of conversion will warp our churches. And then finally, and more briefly, uh, just how our understanding of conversion helps us as pastors help Christians grow uh, in local churches. So first, uh, it's my conviction the local church is one of the key arenas in which the reality of our conversion plays itself out. Uh, we see this in a bunch of different ways. You see this in the church's practice of church membership and discipline. See, the church is one of the ways that God displays the fruit of his reconciling love. So, Ephesians 2, God has reconciled us to himself and he's reconciled us to each other horizontally. The vertical comes first, uh, but there is a, a necessary following horizontal reconciliation between people in the church. So now, one of the ways we live out that, that new reality, that conversion life reality, is, is in the, the context of a local body of believers. Uh, that, that, rea- that new reality has serious implications for the way we live with each other in the church. We are now family. Right? It even, even plays out in the way we speak about each other, right? I don't even need to know you. If, you, if you're here and you're a believer, I... I can call you brother before I even know your, your last name, right? I can call you sister. We're family. In a local church, that reality gets played out week in and week out. Uh, the First Peter uh, says, you were once not a people, now you are a people. You're the people of God. And so that's written to a specific local church. That's a reality we play out in the congregations that we serve and, and attend and minister to and are members of uh, week in and week out. The church is also a place where the fruit of repentance and faith will, will show itself in daily life. Now just think about the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Right? Some of them you can practice on your own. Right? Some of them you could go to Starbucks and sit at a quiet table with a, with a cup of strong coffee and you could exercise self-control. Right? Spirit-wrought self-control. But most of them, you're going to need other people. For gentleness, for love, for kindness. Those, those things will be put to the test in the context of relationships with other people. Particularly uh, in, in Paul's writing to the churches in, in Galatia, in the context of a local church. Uh, the church is where our repentance, our, our profession of repentance and faith is played out and received. So even think about, think about the sacraments, the ordinances for those Baptist brothers in the, in the audience. Baptism, 
Right? It's an initiation rite. So in that in baptism, and, and here I'm revealing that I myself am a Baptist. In baptism, the church hears a person's testimony. The person says, I've been converted. I've repented of my sins. I put my trust in Christ. The church then says, you're one of us. Come join us. In baptism, the church receives that person into membership. Consider yourself part of the family. The Lord's Supper is a means by which we continue on in the practice of the fellowship of Christ's body. When we take the Lord's Supper, amongst other things, we are reaffirming our covenant with one another in a local church body. We are communing with each other. We are communing with Christ, and we are communing with each other. And so, in the old days, they had a a phrase, if someone was consistently absent from the Lord's Supper, or if they were present but refused to take it, they called it dismembering yourself. Right? Because you're, you're literally refusing to do that thing that's required to continue on in membership. And so the idea of local church membership, I think, is bound up with the idea of conversion. So again, hopefully there's all kinds of different people that attend your local Sunday gathering. Strong believers, weak believers, old saints, new Christians, unbelievers. But the the membership of the church is different than the attendance of the church. The membership of the church is reserved for those who are genuinely converted. So the New Testament authors have a category for the occasional tear amongst the wheat, right? They have a category for the, the stray uh, wolf uh, amongst the sheep. But the, the overwhelming assumption of Scripture is that when the, the authors of the New Testament are writing to churches, they're writing to Christians. They're writing to genuinely converted people. So just look at the things that Paul says about the church at Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at the very beginning. This is a letter that Paul wrote to maybe the most uh, tore up of all of his church plants. And here in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 2 and 3, to the church of God that is in Corinth, okay, so he's talking to the church in a specific place, and how does he understand them? To those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So Paul's working in at a specific local church level and, and then sort of stepping back to see their connection to the bigger picture. Paul assumes these people receiving his letter at this local church in Corinth are believers. They are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They, that, that statement only makes sense if the people reading Paul's letter were self-consciously converted Christians. And in fact, the, the imperatives of the New Testament don't make any sense unless they're written to people who are genuinely converted. You can't tell an unbeliever, you can't tell an unconverted person to rejoice in the Lord always. That that doesn't make any sense. You can't tell them to be anxious about nothing or to cast all their cares upon God because He he cares for them. You, You can't expect unconverted people to live lives of holiness and godliness. The membership of the church is meant to be made up of people who are genuinely converted. But with that said, we understand that it's possible, it's possible to say, and it's even possible to genuinely believe that you're converted and not really be converted, right? We thought about that a little bit earlier. I think Jesus uh, is uh, assuming that in Matthew 7:21, where he talks about the many people who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. There are people who genuinely believe they're converted and they're not. 
Uh, frankly, we're not the best judges of our own character. Uh, oftentimes, we believe things about ourselves that are not true. Right? When I was a, a freshman in college, uh, George Washington University had a terrible basketball program for a really long time. But then we got this one guy, a seven foot one center from Nigeria named Yinka Dare, drafted eighth overall by the New Jersey Nets, set an NBA record for most games played without an assist in his career. Just throwing that out there. And suddenly, GW's basketball team got good. Like, they went to the, the Elite Eight. Like, they, they lost to Michigan. You remember the Fab Five Michigan had with Chris Weber and Jalen Rose and all those guys? They lost to those guys by like four points in the tournament. They were good. So the next year, I'm a freshman, and they've got an opening on the spot. One of the, one of the players got kicked off the team, and so they've got a spot open on the team, and they hold open tryouts. I thought, well, here's my chance. After all, just because I'm six foot three and slow and can't jump and not really a very good shooter either, that should not stop me from making this basketball team. So I showed up, right, with everybody else. There's a line of like 50 people, and the coach stood under the basket, and uh, we were all on the line, and we just did layup drills. And he just said, no, 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 no. Didn't matter if you made the layup, didn't matter if you missed the layup. He just knew he didn't want you on his team. Yeah, he saw something a lot more clear about my basketball ability. Than, than I could see, because from, from my head, I'm like Michael Jordan if someone would just give me a chance, right? Other people see the truth about us a lot more clearly than we do sometimes. That's one of the reasons we need to be in churches. It's one of the gifts God's given to us in a local church. Because isn't your experience of growing in God, isn't your experience of growing in holiness, that the Lord is, is constantly using other people? To sort of draw out of you your sin, as Josh was talking about marriage and kids, yeah, in, in a local church, you know, as you're rubbing shoulders with people with different perspectives, people who might irritate you, annoy you, God will use that. God will use that to make you more holy. He'll also use their insight into your life as they, they let you know, look, Mike, I realize you think you're really humble, but you're not. I mean, do you hear the way you talk to that person? Or when you say that, you just, you just reveal the selfishness in you. Or, yeah, I mean, the way you talked to that guy was really sharp. And I'll think, what, what do you mean? Like, I'm Mr. Nice Guy. You know, people can see things. They help you grow in Christ. And so part of the role of the church is to, is to help us see things about ourselves. And when someone won't see something about themselves, when someone won't see a very serious, very real sin in their life, then the church even has the responsibility to exercise discipline against that person. Uh, Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. Uh, that is to say, the church exercises some provisional authority to judge whether or not someone's confession of faith, whether or not someone's uh, profession that they are genuinely converted is true. Uh, if you want to think more about that, the book that I mentioned earlier, The Surprising Offense of God's Love, is really, really helpful. It's a really good book, just showing how when Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter, uh, he's giving to the church this authority, this, this provisional authority to establish whether or not someone's profession of faith uh, is really genuine. And so by submitting ourselves to that sort of examination and the approval of a local church, allowing them to examine the evidence in our own lives to see whether we really are converted, that's one of the ways we receive assurance of salvation. That's one of the ways God's given to us to, to have confidence that our conversion is true. We have a... a a couple of folks in our church that I think I mentioned earlier that just really struggle with assurance. 
And it's funny because I'm more worried about a lot of other people than I am about them. Right? There's, there's one guy in particular. He loves the Lord. He has grown so much in the eight years that I've known him in, his, in, in godliness, in control of his tongue, in his affections for Christ. But he's just, he's just a discouraged guy by nature. He sees his sin. He sees his failures clearly. And so about once every nine to 16 months, he'll come and make an appointment for lunch and, and he'll just be like, I just... I feel like I'm not a Christian. I'm just not growing like I, like I hope. I'm just not. I'm, and you list out all these areas he's failing. And it's, it's good to be able to point him and say, look, brother, go. Ask five people in the church what they see in your life. Ask them about their concerns, about your spiritual well-being. And ask them if they've seen any ways in which you've grown in Christ over the last year. And, and then come back and let's, let's deal with that. And he goes away and and he comes back and he's like, okay, I get, what you're, I get your point. Because the other people in the church were able to say to him, hey, look, we saw you serving so selflessly in this, in this context. And do you remember when, when this happened, how, how you're able to be so helpful and so, so you're able to minister kindness and grace to that person? And, and do you remember when you, you brought that person to church and you were sharing Christ? And, and on and on and on. Other people in the church were able to come alongside this brother and say, look, as far as we can tell, by all the, the, the scriptural sort of... Um, criteria. You, you seem like you're one of us. You look like one of us. You act like one of us. You believe like one of us. That the church, God has given us the church and church membership so that we can help have that kind of assurance. And so, as pastors and church leaders, we need to make sure that we're practicing church membership in a way that serves Christians and, and helps them to have this kind of assurance. I don't think we serve people very well by taking them into the membership of the church without any kind of examination. Uh, that doesn't help them. I don't think that protects the church very well. So, uh, I'm Southern Baptist, and the, the pattern in a lot of Southern Baptist churches at, at Guilford, where, where I'm the pastor, this was our, our practice before I was the pastor there, is that if you wanted to join the church, uh, you came forward after the service. And then, in next week's bulletin, they wrote in your name in the bulletin and said, so-and-so has joined the church. Right? Well, that's great, unless that person's not really converted. In which case, you've given them the sense that, hey, look, everything's great. This church wants me as a member. They must think I'm fine. And now you've got a guy who's not really converted, uh, part of your body and taking part of your body life. And so as pastors, we need to be really careful. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we are carefully examining people. Now, could that uh, fruit inspecting, I think, was a, a term that got thrown around earlier. Could it, could it devolve into that? Yeah, absolutely. And could it be sort of harsh and critical? No doubt. But, but I think we don't serve people well when we don't bother to examine their profession of faith at all. When we just say, hey, look, this guy says he's a Christian. I mean, there's no chance he could be wrong about that, so let's just take him into membership. At any given point... We'll have several people in our church who are going through the church membership process, who have attended the classes, uh, who have met with one of our elders, and who have said, put their hand up and said, yeah, I would like to join the church. And, and at any given point, there's a few people that we're just a little bit concerned about, just a little bit leery. There's maybe something not clear in their understanding of the gospel. Um, and, and we don't... We don't sort of ask them to get it right the first time and then you're sunk if you don't. But even as we kind of try to draw out from them, well, let's talk about sin. 
Like, how do you understand yourself to be a sinner? Just as we talk to them, it doesn't seem like they really have a firm grasp on, on the things that we're talking about. Maybe their, their repentance seems a little shaky when you, when you drill down on it. It seems like, yeah, I'm not sure they really are really committed with their lives to turning from sin. You know, it seems like they're, they're a little unclear on that. Or when they describe their conversion, it, you know, they, they really aren't able to communicate it, a, a real sense of trust in Christ. So again, could that be hypercritical? Could you sort of devolve into sin-sniffing? Of course, that, that is a, that's a very real danger. But again, I don't think we show love to people just by sort of avoiding the awkwardness of saying, hey, you know, I think we should wait. Uh, I think instead what we do is we ask these folks to just to take some time and to take time with one of our elders usually. You know, let's, let's read through Luke's Gospel together just so we can get to know you better, just so we can interact more about the Gospel and about what it means to be a Christian. Or maybe there's a specific issue. Let's, you know, let's study the issue of homosexuality a little more clearly. We want to make sure you understand how the church understands that and why that's, you know, sexual purity is part of our uh, Christian discipleship. Let's really make sure you believe what Scripture says on that. Let's talk about what it really means to repent. Let's talk about what it really means to believe. Let's pray that God would give us greater clarity on this issue together. Uh, is it awkward? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. People don't like anything except a sort of rubber stamp. I, I totally understand that. I think I'd probably be put off if I went to join a church and the church was like, well, let's wait. But I think it's the loving thing to do. I think it's, it also helps to protect the church. After that period of time, we hope to have clarity. Uh, usually, uh, that person either realizes, oh, you know, I don't think I am converted, but I want to be. And, and so that person, that's the sort of arena in which that person becomes a Christian. Uh, or sometimes we realize, yeah, I think our misgivings were a little bit misplaced there. They actually, there does seem to be really good fruit in their lives. or you know, There does seem to be reasons to be confident this person's conversion or testimony of conversion is, is genuine. And so this kind of connects then into the church's practice of discipline. So that's kind of membership. In terms of discipline, because it's possible to be self-deceived, and because it's possible to be just frankly intentionally deceptive, there, there may come times when a professing believer's conduct or belief makes it seem like, in fact, they may not be converted at all. In those circumstances, the church is called to remove that person from the membership of the church. Again, at the beginning we said, membership in the local church is for people who are converted. And so if someone begins to give uh, evidence by their life or by their belief uh, that they're not converted, the church is, is commanded by Scripture to remove that person from the membership of the church. That person needs to be excommunicated, right? Removed from communion at the church. No longer permitted to take the Lord's Supper. No longer uh, allowed to consider themselves part of the communion of that local body. And so I can give you two examples from my church. We don't run around excommunicating people all the time. Uh, but there have been several uh, times and places uh, in the past eight years that I've been pastor there where it has become necessary to say to someone, look, we, we can't know your eternal soul. We can't know everything about your faith. But, but given what Scripture says and given what you're saying and doing, we can't give you assurance that you're converted anymore. Uh, we, we can't put our sort of stamp of approval on your life and your, your doctrine. So there was one young man, maybe about 25 years old, who uh, converted to another church. Okay, we let people go to different churches all the time. But... In going to this church, he's, he self-consciously denied uh, that salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. 
Uh, he now believed that the sacraments and his own good works were part of his salvation. So, this is denying the gospel. Right? This is, this is denying uh, the very center of our faith. This calls into question his conversion. Now, in my, as a pastor, I, I hope and pray that in fact he's inconsistent. That he says he believes those things, but, but re- in reality I, I hope his heart genuinely trusts in Christ in a way that he doesn't say. But, but here he's denying the very center of our faith, the gospel, that we can't be saved by anything we do. Uh, and so we as a church, when we gathered together, had to remove him and say, brother, you're, you're denying the gospel. We, we don't have grounds to encourage you to think that you're a Christian, that you're genuinely converted. And so we removed him uh, for his own good, hopefully. Uh, another young man, the son of a, a family in our church, seemed like a faithful guy, uh, had been involved and a member of the church for a while, served every week faithfully in one of our sort of key service ministries. And uh, one day got a call and he was in jail. And it turns out he'd been committing a terrible crime for eight years. Eight plus years, in fact. Um, regularly, repeatedly, all the while serving the church, all the while meeting with pastors, meeting with other Christians, directly lying about specific questions where you would have had to reveal this sin. And not like, hmm, sin, we all struggle with sin, but like, literally, you're in jail for a long time, sin. I mean, really serious sin. So again, we, as a church, we had to remove him from the membership of our, of our body. Now, I actually hope, I have reason to believe and to hope that he is genuinely converted now in prison. Uh, he, he immediately felt great remorse. But, but there's nothing we could do to, to give him assurance of his salvation at that point. You've just been lying to us for the last eight years about this really terrible sin. There's nothing you can say right now that's going to say, oh, well, sure, great, okay, good. You must really have repented. Uh, instead, what we've done is meet with him. Pray with him. Read scripture with him. Encourage any evidence we see in his life that he may actually genuinely be converted now. To encourage him in repentance and can, can uh, encourage him in the faith. But, but can you see how if we kept him in the body, if we kept him in the church, that would both be uh, a terrible thing for the health of our church. I mean, read 1 Corinthians 5. A little leaven you know, goes through the whole lump uh, for the witness of our church to the community. I mean, this is in the newspapers. This is on websites. Uh, we had to protect the the, the witness of our congregation, but it also doesn't serve him well to, to be sitting in jail with you know, these, these things uh, in his background, thinking, well, yeah, I'm still, still a Christian. I'm forgiven. You know, I don't have to worry about those things. So a church is going to be the, the arena in which a lot of these questions gets played out. As we learn to love each other more and sort of give evidence of our conversion, uh, as, we, as we walk away from certain sins in the context of living with other people, but then also in the membership and the discipline of the church, which God's really given to us so that we can have assurance of faith. So I think one of the ways you can answer the question, are, are you really converted? I, I would say, ask my church. I mean, yes, we can talk about that question, but, but I'd want you to go talk to the people that, that I live with on a, on a week-in, week-out basis. Uh, the people that have accepted me into the membership of the church, the people that I take the Lord's Supper with. Ask them if I'm a Christian. Uh, it's part of their responsibility as well. Now, the second point, and this is going to look at it from a different perspective, but thinking about how conversion affects the local church, I think that if our doctrine of conversion is deficient, or if it's imbalanced in any kind of way, it's going to warp the life of the church. So, for example, at the outset, we talked about how 
conversion, our doctrine of conversion, uh, maintains a sort of interplay between God's sovereign, one-sided act of salvation and our involvement in our conversion. Right, you have these two things. You could call them tensions, right? God acts unilaterally, but we're called to respond. Uh, you have a response of repentance and faith. If, if we get those tensions wrong, that's going to show up in our church. If we, if we get our doctrine, if we skew the emphases too much, or if we, if we land on one side more than the other, it's going to show up in the life of our church. So, for example, if we, if we put too much emphasis on our personal responsibility to repent and believe without a sort of a balanced a way of understanding God's sovereignty and salvation, well, that might tempt us to compromise. It might tempt us to uh, manipulation. Because if it's, if it's ultimately about getting you to do what you have to do, then as a preacher, I'm going to lay it on thick. Now, I'm going to do everything I can do in my power to make you do what you need to do. Uh, I'm going to tell you heart-wrenching stories. Right, about, about a child on a bridge and his dad's closing the bridge so the train can go across, you know? Until it seems to you like if you don't believe in Jesus now, you're going to kill that little boy all over again, right? Or, or I'm going to tell you to close your eyes and just raise your hand if you want to, if you want to accept Jesus. And even though no one's raising their hand, I'm going to say thank you. I see that hand. <laughs> right? Because I'm going to try and get you to raise your hand because you're going to think other people are raising their hands. Right? And as a church leader, I'm going to need to do things to make the church grow because ultimately it's up to me. That's how pragmatism is going to abound. I'm going to stop asking, what does God want? And start asking the question, what produces the results I'm looking for? After all, if it's all on us, if it's all our responsibility, you and I can control how this thing goes. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. We're going to get the numbers up. We're going to baptize the maximum number of people. But on the other hand, if we overemphasize God's sovereignty and we neglect the, the reality of our sort of personal responsibility to respond in repentance and faith, you'll wind up with all kinds of different problems. Uh, you might begin to neglect evangelism. Right? After all, God's got it. He, he knows what he's doing. He's got it covered. We might be less zealous in sermon preparation. Right? Look, if God can use a C-minus sermon as well as an A-plus sermon, why am I working so hard, right? Why have a vigorous sense of body life with people exercising their gifts and serving each other if the growth of the body is ultimately just up to God anyway? If we overemphasize God's sovereignty, we might be, even begin to neglect the call to holiness in our own lives. And if there's nothing I can do about it, then like, what am I worried about? There was a a guy at the church when I first arrived. The previous pastor was trying to revitalize this dying and dead church. And so he went to the local seminary. And he put a sign up on the bulletin board and said, hey, I'm looking for help. And a couple of seminary students came out to help this guy. And that was a good job. That was smart thinking, actually. Uh, to get the church going again, gave them opportunities to be involved in ministry. They, uh, they kind of turned on the pastor after about a year and a half and realized, yeah, they didn't think he was a very good pastor after all. So they got him fired, basically which means never trust seminary students if you're a pastor. At least that's the lesson I pulled from it. But, but this one guy was at the church, and, uh, and I remember trying to get to know him a little bit, and, and I, I was talking to him, and he had served as kind of the interim pastor between the previous guy, it's about a year and a half, and then me. And so this guy had been one of the, one of the guys kind of holding things together, and he was officially, you know, the church had, had sort of 
named him the interim pastor. And so as, as we talked about it, I was like, well, you know, Paul, I'll just call him Paul. Like, why am I here? Like, why didn't you just pastor the church? You want to be a pastor. You know these people. Like, there's no one else who wanted to be the pastor. Like, why, why didn't you just go ahead and pastor the church? Like, why am I even here? And he's like, oh, well, you know. Um, and then he confessed this pornography problem that he's had for the last ten years. And I was like, oh, okay, wow. Um, I said, well, what's, like, what's going on with that? Like, what are you, like, who's helping you? What are you doing? What, you know, how are you pursuing repentance? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. He's like, so I'm just pretty much waiting until God changes me. He's like, I'm, you know, just, once God sovereignly gives me, you know, the ability to control myself, then, then we'll be fine. Yeah, I would say your, your emphasis there, your, your balance is a little bit off, buddy. We, we can't veer off in that direction to the point where God's sovereignty becomes an excuse for our sin. Because after all, we can't do anything about it anyway. We can't veer off towards our responsibility. We can't veer off towards God's sovereignty. In the same way, we, can't get out of, we shouldn't get out of balance uh, that, that sort of tension or that, that, that um, yeah, I guess I like the word balance, between the necessity of repentance and faith. Right? Our, our church's statement of faith calls them inseparable graces. Right, two sides of one coin. But it's possible to so emphasize one that you neglect the other. And that also warps the church. Uh, if we neglect repentance, the fruit's obviously going to be bad. The church will just look like the world. Just reflect the world's values, mimic the world's behaviors. You're not going to encourage people to count the cost of following Christ. You'll be very quick to give assurance of salvation to anyone who says they want to be a Christian. After all, repentance is really not required. Sin in the, in the body will be tolerated. Sins against the body, backbiting, gossip, won't be confronted. But if we only preach repentance without the call to faith, then the church will most likely be very, very, very well behaved and utterly graceless. Right? You'll get a lot of legalism. You'll get a lot of anxiety that comes with trying to measure up to God's standards. I think you'll get a lot of clicks in your church because, because people will exalt whatever law they think is most important and they will look down on everyone who doesn't keep that law. Right? If you, if you don't uh, preach to your people the necessity of coming to Christ with, with nothing in your hands, with only uh, a trust and faith, uh, if you only talk about repentance and sin and turning from sin, you're going to get a lot of clicks in your church. Because you're going to get the homeschoolers over here. And you're going to get the kind of missional guys over here. And, and you'll get the sort of emotional worship people here. And then you'll have like the theology nerds, right? And everyone's got their own law. And everyone's honoring God by having both hands and one foot up in the air while they worship. Or, or by, by reading Balvink in the original Dutch. Or, or by, by having like their entire neighborhood over for a backyard barbecue every day for a month. Right? Or, or, or by making sure that their kids never ever go outside. Right? We, and we just keep ratcheting up the law, right? So that we're, we're, we're confident that we're okay. We've exhibited repentance enough. And your church just winds up fractured and weird and ungracious. People won't be honest about their sins. People won't uh, be transparent. They'll keep up appearances. Because that's the coin of the realm. Outsiders, notorious sinners, they're not going to feel comfortable in that kind of church. So we've got no hope to offer them. So if we don't get that doctrine right, 
If we aren't able to say it's repentance, yes, it's also faith. If we're not able to say God's sovereignty, yes, and our responsibility to turn and believe, well, the the church is going to get warped. And finally, our third point. Our understanding of conversion is going to help Christians grow in the context of local churches. The Christian life is a, a very radical thing. It's not just missionaries. It's not just sort of super spiritual people. The Christian life is a radical thing. Anyone who has experienced conversion has experienced a massive shift. So it's not like switching your brand of deodorant. This is a total alteration of your spiritual state. This is a change of cosmic allegiance. And it may not seem like that to the outside world. See, the, the, the change that comes with conversion... The, the growth in love for other people. The love for God that wasn't there before, but's there now and is slowly driving out the love of other things. The, the, the beginnings of, of preferring the needs of other people to your own. Those evidences of conversion, those things are not going to be impressive to your neighbors. Those things, for the most part, will be imperceptible to your coworkers. Right, they'd be impressed if you lost 30 pounds or if you had plastic surgery. Right, that would be a change that got their attention. But Paul says that this change, conversion, is profound. This is how he puts it. We've heard this verse already, but really listen to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's a coffee cup verse, right? That's a bumper sticker, t-shirts. But really stop and think about what he's saying there. It's a new creation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Listen to what 1 Peter 2.9 says. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's hard to imagine a more radical change than the change that comes at conversion. And so if that's true, and we could keep going, right? You could read Ephesians 2. You you were children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy... I mean, you could, you could go all through the Bible seeing this radical change. If that's true, then how do we live in our churches? How should we, what, what kind of people should we be in our congregations? Can you see how conversion and understanding conversion is going to shape the discipleship in our church? We, we talked earlier about how the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture work together. Right? Scripture comes to us with the truth of the gospel, the, the, the reality of our forgiveness in Christ. And then comes along with the imperatives to say, now this is how you live. You know, we are all of the things that Scripture says we are. And so as we think about discipling people in the church, as we think about helping them grow in Christ, we're simply teaching them and expecting them to live like it. To live like the things the Bible says about them are really true. We can't tolerate sin. We can't treat it lightly because it's, that's not who we are anymore. 
We're, we're new creations. We can't walk in darkness. We've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And, and so we're calling the people in our church as we disciple them, as we watch them grow, to live in light of their conversion. That's easy to say. <coughs> Excuse me. But when we speak to a, a brother or sister who is ensnared in sin, and they just can't seem to see, see their way out of it, uh, who is maybe even beginning to flirt with believing the lies of the devil, then we need to confront them with the reality of their conversion. Because sometimes, in moments of sort of temporary spiritual insanity, sin feels right. Our desires, I mean, they seem to spring unbidden from us, right? They just, they just come on us. And you think, I didn't ask for that. I didn't want that. I just... That's like who I am. It feels like I've always wanted these things. Whether it's a particular sexual lust, or maybe it's an addiction, or even some sort of insecurity that drives us to speak unkindly about other people, or or whatever it is for you. We can say to each other, brother, that's not who you are. You're converted. You are set free from this bondage. You've been, you've been released from a love of sin. You've grabbed onto Christ by faith. So, so, repent. Put your trust in Christ in this situation. Sister, you are a new creation. Walk in the light. You're not in the darkness anymore. Walk in a manner worthy of the way Christ called you. I would say just pastorally, ministering to people where we do, when we do, I think this is particularly important as we think about how to minister to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Which, as that becomes normalized in our culture, is just going to be increasingly uh, an issue that we need to deal with inside the church. Not even how do we speak to people outside the church, but just people in the church who struggle with that um, particular sin. Because the message of the world to them, and we mentioned this earlier, is that that, that same-sex attraction, that is their fundamental identity as human beings. Everything in the world is pumping that message into them. And it is a really easy message to believe. That's the reality that shapes who you are. But we need to come to them and say, there's a deeper reality. There's something far more important about who you are than this one particular struggle in your life. You're a child of God. You are a new creation. You are a Christian. I think in many ways, the life of the church and the maturity of believers, the, the work of the pastor is reminding people and fleshing out for people the implications of their conversion. They're reminding them what Christ has done for them. Reminding them what they've been freed from. Reminding them what they've turned from and what they've turned to. And then helping them to walk in light of that. Before I hand things back over to Josh, let me just take a minute. I want to pray particularly for our churches and particularly the churches that are represented in this room and my church as well. Just that, that God would help us as church leaders, church members, uh, to, to be wise in these matters. So, let's pray. Our gracious God, we, we are so thankful for the way that your salvation comes to us. We thank you that you have not simply 
forgiven us and left us in our sin. But Lord Jesus, we praise you that the reason why you came was to destroy the works of the evil one. And that that destruction has begun in our lives now. And so Lord, we pray for our churches. Lord, we pray that you would help us as church members and church leaders to be wise in the way we talk about these things. That you would give us great understanding of, of what you've done for us in Christ. That you would help us to minister faithfully the gospel uh, to the people around us. And that we would live out the reality of our conversion in our churches. We, we pray that so that you would be greatly glorified in our midst. And so that we'd have great joy in, in being your people. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.